Welcome to this podcast on innovation, presented to you by ING. Recorded in the ING Cafe during the FinTech Conference Money 2020 in Amsterdam. Welcome to the ING Cafe at the Rye in Amsterdam, where we have Europe's biggest FinTech event, Money 20, taking place. Please uh, pull up a seat now and join us at our table here at this very Amsterdam-style cafe where we're going to have a talk with some of the biggest names walking these halls. Together with ING, we're making sure that you do not miss a thing here at Money 2020. I'm Daniel Frankel. I'm a lecturer in consultancy and change at the Rotterdam Business School, and I'm a curious fintech luddite, and I'm also going to be your host. And joining us, very special now in the buzz of the ING Cafe at Monday 2020, is someone who, through his books and speaking, is considered by many to be a fintech guru. Chris Skinner, the founder of the Financer website, welcome. Thanks, Daniel. It's great to be here. Do you like that guru name? Do you like it? When I say the word guru, I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> I've seen that film, The Love Guru, but I don't go there. <laughs> well, but you're somebody who's, you're far, you're far ahead in your thinking. And as somebody who's far ahead, what, what do you notice when you walk through these halls? Well, I've been writing about technology and financial services for almost 20 years. And... A lot of what I've been writing about is focused on the future of money and banking um, because that's what we don't know, so that's where I want to focus. And what's been interesting is that probably a lot of what I've written uh, 10 years ago has started to come true, Um, as in banks' business models are being ripped apart by technology and reinvented by the open sourcing structures of the internet. And now what's showing at Money 2020 here in Amsterdam is huge numbers of innovative, visionary, young companies showing their ideas, demonstrating that they're getting traction, they're getting customers, and they're also getting a lot of focus and support from the banks. So we're seeing this collaborative banking and startup community working in much more harmony than I've ever seen before. So you're you're seeing some things come true. Are you seeing any surprises? Not so many surprises, because I think a lot of what's predictable is technology. Um, I mean, when I focus on the future, I look at political, economic, social, and technological change. And to be honest, what surprises me is I cannot predict anything politically or economically because it just goes AWOL, like Brexit and Donald Trump. But you can predict a lot of technology change. I think the only surprising thing is how long it takes. So, for example, two, three years ago, Money 2020 talked a lot about blockchain distributed ledger technology. We got very excited about it, but we're still waiting to see it coming into fruition. So that's a lot slower than expected. We talk a lot about AI and machine learning, and that's starting to come through sooner. So it's just the speed of how these things come through rather than the shock of these things. Okay, so it, so it's fintech here, and and and, and we're, we we see obviously technology. We we see the the, the financial imp- application to that. Um, do we do we see the human dimension behind fintech at this show? To an extent, um, again, many of the visionary young new companies are completely focused on the customer experience and the customer journey with technology and digital services. And so the human element of how they apply that to the technology is critically important. 
Uh, one of the things that you don't see here, and I was at Money 2020 Asia, which launched earlier this year, is what's happening in the Southern Hemisphere. And I see a clear divide between Northern and Southern Hemisphere, where the Northern Hemisphere, particularly Europe and America, have a lot of legacy infrastructure from the last century that the fintech community is trying to make easier. And they're using technology to do uh, what banks have always done, but cheaper and faster with technology. Whereas in the Southern Hemisphere, they didn't have a lot of what we have in the Northern Hemisphere. For example, in China, they didn't really have checkbooks or credit cards and debit cards and plastic. And so they've completely leapfrogged us and they've completely switched to mobile telephones. And we're not seeing so much of that here. And they call it tech fin rather than fintech because they start with the technology and work out how to apply technology to finance rather than how we do it, which is start with finance and work out how to apply the technology. And the st stunning statistic, I'm just about to say that, that came out of China last year is that they transacted $15 trillion through mobile telephones, mainly with WeChat Pay and Alipay, which is the big two players. And compare that with the USA, for example, where they transacted about $150 billion. China's you know, a 100 times magnitude of the size of volume of payments that are going through their systems. So that's where I get surprises from. Um, and I got several of those in Money 2020 Asia, not so many from Money 2020 Europe. Now, in, in your book, uh, Dig Digital Human, uh, you're describing two scenarios, which is how technology is changing humanity, to put it very broadly. Could you paint those two scenarios in this context? Well, the main focus of the new book as its starting point is that because I travel non-stop around the world, I normally spend a lot of time in temples and museums and churches and learn the history of regions and nations. And I realized that we're in a massive revolution of humans right now because we've never been in a position historically where every human on earth is connected in real time and can trade and transact and talk in real time. And literally seven and a half billion people are now in a network where they are all together globally if they want to be. And all they need is a mobile telephone to do that. So one of the key scenarios is that if you go back 10 years ago, there's seven and a half billion people on earth, but only four and a half billion had financial inclusion, access to the banking financial network. Today, every human has access to the network and every human can trade and transact and use payments and services, which they never could before. And that's a critical point because historically, because of exclusion, the poor get punished when they try and trade because it's very expensive for them to do it. As an example, in the African nations where mobile wallets are taken off very quickly, it used to be that money was insecure, you'd get robbed quite easily. But uh, in addition, if you wanted to move money from the cities to the villages, you had to do it through a taxi driver or a bus driver who sometimes would not deliver it, and if they did, would take a, a whacking commission do that through a mobile SMS text message, it completely changes the structure of the system. And McKinsey estimate that as a result, something like $3.5 trillion of GDP will be released through financial inclusion by about 2025. That's like a new economy the size of Germany. And the second scenario is the idea that what's coming out of Asia and the Southern Hemisphere, but particularly out of China, will redefine how we think about money because it's going to be incredibly easy to include and support the payment and financial system within your other systems. So if you're using Amazon, you don't have to duck out to check your balance on your bank app before you buy that a washing machine or whatever it is you want to order. You can check the bank balance within Amazon whilst you're doing the transaction. 
Um, and that's open banking, open sourcing, and plug-and-play systems between banks and uh, tech and technology players and fintech startups. So th- there's a massive change. But then, that the summary, I guess, that Daniel, is financial inclusion for all and very easy access to finance within other services. But with this change, it, is, is, it strikes me as being something beyond revolutionary. Is, 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 there any, is there anything historically, are there any historical parallels in technological change and then the behavior that would follow that, 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 that people like yourself can look at? Or is this, is this a one-off event that we're in the midst of right now? Um, it is a massive movement forward building on three previous movements. So the first movement was becoming human. And if you've read the book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Hariri, great book. But in the middle of that, it says one of the things that made Homo sapiens dominate Earth rather than Homo habilis or Neanderthals is that we had a voice and therefore could talk to each other and create shared beliefs and myths and legends, which made us able to live in much larger groups than people who didn't have a voice, which lived more like apes in groups of about 25. We could live in groups of 100 to 150. So shared beliefs is a core value um, within humanity from the first revolution. The second revolution is becoming civilized, where we invented money because we had people who were no longer farming or having to forage for food. Only one in five people were farming. Four out of five could run bars and provide entertainment. So how do you deal with that? You have to have an exchange system that's not just based on um, food. So they invented money 10,000 years ago for the second revolution of becoming civilized. The third revolution was becoming industrial and commercial and global, the industrial revolution, where we invented banks because we had to start to store and move money across borders and have a trusted regulated system to do that. Which, so governments regulate and license banks to store money and issue money as paper rather than having to deal with gold. And this fourth revolution doesn't get rid of uh, shared beliefs, money or banks, but it creates this new entity which is data as a currency, data as money, cryptocurrencies, the things we're seeing as global exchange capabilities using data transfers. And that builds on the previous systems, but by doing so it demands that the old systems update themselves. And, and, and with these tremendous changes, is there not necessarily going to be some kind of adap- adaptative pain in the process? And I, 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 I think back to Alvin Toffler's Future Shock, yes. to somebody my age, and, and the idea that back in the 70s that the world would start to change faster than our ability to keep up with the change. And that was a theory of the future. It seems like we're there in one way. Yeah, I mean, we're going through a fundamental shift in humanity and trade and commerce. And there will be massive pain as we go through that shift because people, for example, are going to be hugely worried about losing their jobs because of artificial intelligence, robotics, machine learning. But if I go back to the last big revolution, the Industrial Revolution, and as the speed of that change became faster and faster, um, particularly around the end of the 19th century where automobiles, electricity, telephones were coming into vogue, people started to get future shock. um, And you may not know it, but Coca-Cola was invented as a medicine remedy to deal with that shock of change. Um, So we still drink a lot of Coke today, um, maybe some other forms of it too. But what we're going to see is in 50 years, 100 years, a whole new raft of new jobs being created and invented that come out of these technology changes, just as we did in the Industrial Revolution. So 
If you had said 100 years ago that 90% of the people on farms are going to lose their jobs, you'd have probably been lynched. And yet that's exactly what's happened, more than that. But they've moved into other jobs. Some people think with robotics and artificial intelligence, there will be no more jobs for humans in the future. I completely disagree. I think there'll be lots of new jobs for humans, but there'll be the things that we do that machines cannot learn, which is all about emotions, creativity, art, music, and things that machines cannot do that humans can do much better. It, it seems that in many ways uh, an individual feels uh, swept by these developments. Is there a way that, that a contemporary individual can feel that they're a part of controlling the change? You can't control the change because it's unstoppable. What you can do is try and be a part of predicting the change and getting the skills and the competencies and capabilities that you need to be relevant as the time moves forward. So, for example, um, about half of the people who work in banking will lose their jobs in the next decade. Uh, some say more, some say less, but let's say it's half. Uh, what will they do instead? You know, these guys, particularly investment bankers and traders, for example, were doing very highly skilled, highly paid jobs because they had knowledge that now machines have learnt and therefore their knowledge is no longer relevant. Well, what you see them doing is leaving the investment banks and starting fintech companies and working on new ideas using those technologies that replace their jobs to create new jobs and new companies. And that's what I think you have to do. You have to reskill yourself to be relevant to the future. Let's look at the big banks then. What, what do you think are the biggest mistakes they're making? The biggest mistake most of the big banks are making is that they don't have people in the leadership team who can lead the change needed for that bank. Uh, I have very few examples of banks that really get digitalization and this digital revolution. Uh, and the ones that do are the ones that have a CEO, a chief executive, and a team working with that chief executive who have technology experience. It amazes me that there's an analysis of the biggest banks of the world's resumes of their leadership teams that discovered 94% have no technology experience ever in their life. And how can you be a digital bank or create a digitalization of the institution if you don't understand what's going on? Does it also require uh, a cultural shift? And if so, what advice do you have for banks to make that cultural shift? Yeah, absolutely, Daniel. Um, I mean, this is the nail on the head for me, which is it's not about technology, because the technology is transient and often becomes obsolete very quickly. It's about the culture and attitude and the DNA of the institution to understand the journey that we're going through. Because when we talk about this digital revolution, it doesn't have a destination. It's just a continuum of change that you have to keep leading the organization through those changes and having a vision of where you're taking the institution forwards to. So my main advice to most banks is that if they're treating digital and technology as doing banking cheaper and faster, or if they're delegating it to some functional leader like a chief digital officer or chief innovation officer to make this change, then they've got it completely wrong. You've got to get it into the culture and the DNA of the institution through leadership change. And that's a massive ask of the top people in the bank. And what, what does that mean, leadership change? What, 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 are the, what are the specifics of leadership change in that case? Well, if you take the banks that are actually doing this well, uh, and as I say, there's very few, ING here in Amsterdam would claim to be one, and certainly from what I'm seeing, they're doing a good job. Um, but the examples I normally pick on have the management walking the walk, not just talking the talk. So I see a lot of banks making announcements about 
innovation, technology, digital. And a lot of it's jazz hands and innovation theatre. It's just you know, a play to make them look cool when internally they haven't changed at all. What, uh, when I t- pick out banks from ING to BBVA to DBS to JP Morgan to USAA, they're all ones that the leadership team comprises a healthy diversity of balance of people who understand technology and banking. And they walk the walk, they don't just talk the talk. A great example is Piyush Gupta, who's the CEO of DBS in Singapore, talks about trying to build an attitude of a 24,000 person fintech startup within an established bank. But they do that by all the management team going around all of their middle management teams and all of their people at the front line and saying, this is where we're going, this is how it's going to work, this is what we're actually doing, this is why we're doing it, and this is where we want you to be included if you can make the change within yourself to be part of this journey. And if you can't, then unfortunately you have to go and get a job with one of the banks that wants that sort of skill. Chris, the name of the show is Money 2020, and there's a lot of talk about the future of money. I'm curious on your take, is there a future for money? Um, As we sit here today in 2018, um, and 2020 is only two years away, money's still fundamental to our lives. Um, Between sex and money, they're the control factors of our lives, um, basically. Uh, And money is all about power. Um, and that doesn't go away quickly. So money has a relevance for a long time, but now money is no longer cash or cards, it's data as a currency, and it's how you build value through data. And the value in data is not just in a cash or payments form, it's in memories on Facebook, it's in the ability to find things that I'm looking for, it's in the ability to um, get someone who understands me through my digital lifestyle and that's the sort of things we'll pay for but there's an interesting take on the next revolution of humanity because it doesn't stop we're in the fourth one right now and in the book i briefly reference at the end the fifth revolution which is when we become multi-planetary and start exploring other planets and living on other planets which elon musk predicts will happen within the next 25 years in terms of living on mars and um having people move into those new structures and if that does happen I love the vision of Star Trek um, because Star Trek's utopian. Star Wars is dystopian. Star Trek's all about getting on with other people on other planets. Star Wars is about killing them. Um, And in Star Trek, the vision is that we don't deal with money at all anymore. I mean, you never saw Captain Kirk pay for anything on this enterprise. It's all about reputation and the betterment of humanity and doing what's right. And wealth becomes irrelevant when we become a multi-planetary species in the Trekonomics vision of the world which I buy into. I think that's a great vision. Are we ready to be cashless? Depends which country you live in. Um, Turkey estimates they'll be cashless by 2023, Sweden by around 2020. Uh, But in China, again, you see it in the big cities of China, they are pretty much cashless already. I was recently in Hangzhou to write a case study around Alibaba and and Financial and Alipay. And um, when I arrived as a Westerner, uh, I discovered... The hotel didn't have a restaurant or a bar. There was no, 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 nothing in the room, so I was hungry and thirsty. Went to a convenience store, and as I got to the checkout, they did not accept contactless or chip and pin or mag stripe or cards. What they accepted was a mobile phone app, which I couldn't get because I'm not a Chinese citizen. Um, they wouldn't even accept cash in some stores. So cashless China is pretty much here in the big cities today. 
and I think we're ready for it in most countries to be honest if you go around most of the Nordic region or even here in Amsterdam you, know, you can easily get away without having any cash and okay so cash is disappearing uh, cryptocurrency is on the rise um, but they by definition lack uh, essential regulation uh, is that sustainable well, they are emerging regulations. Now, the regulator can only regulate what they can see. They can't predict what's coming. And so they wait to see how these things operate. And they say, well, if you're going to trade in cryptocurrencies, you have to do it through a regulated exchange by a government. When you cash out cryptocurrencies, you have to do it through a regulated marketplace that's licensed by a government entity for payments, etc., etc., etc. But what I do find interesting here is we've got a payments race that takes place at Money 2020 at each event where people have to get here using just a single form of payment and there is one person who had to get here using only bitcoin or, or cryptocurrencies and they, they're here so cryptocurrencies are usable as commercial transactions at point of sale today and in fact what they were just saying on stage is that they find it far easier this year than last year so cryptocurrencies are definitely out there and the regulatory piece is all about how are they used who's using them who's trading them how are they invested in and regulating all those pieces Chris, can you, can you look into your crystal ball and, and, and tell us uh, what will be at the Money 2030 conference? Uh, a good ask, Daniel. Um, I don't think we'll be talking about cash much. Um, in fact, we don't talk about cash much here in 2018. Uh, I don't think we'll be talking about cards much. Um, and we have Visa and MasterCard sponsoring this event, um, but I don't see cards being relevant in the future um, but certainly by 2030 I think MasterCard will be called MasterChip um, we will be talking a lot more about digital currencies uh, digital currencies that are issued by nation states but also dis digital currencies that are issued by um, commercial entities uh, and we will see hopefully an interesting development around decentralised networks and so right now there's a discussion taking place about the big platform companies like Facebook and Amazon and Google having too much power by centralizing our services and we need to decentralize that data and those services and so by 2030 I think we'll be talking around a decentralized network that allows Daniel to own his piece of the internet and allow people to look at his piece of the internet when he wants them to meanwhile Chris Skinner has his piece of the internet and again, I can do the same and just allow my data to be released when I want to release it, anonymized and secure. From my piece of the Internet, I, I look back and I say to Chris Skinner, live long and prosper. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Daniel. So much for your time. This is Chris Skinner, the advisor, author and guru. And he can be found and read on the Financer website, among many other places. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Daniel. Interested in who else joined us in the ING Cafe during Money 2020? You can find all the podcasts on ing.com or at dnr.nl slash money2020.